Well, it is December, and I cannot believe how fast this year has gone by. And we all know what December means. December means that the Christmas season has arrived. Whether we like it or not, it's here. Um, And I'm going to confess to you guys, I'm one of those people who really likes Christmas. Um, And I like it for the kinds of reasons that you would expect a Christian pastor to like Christmas. Uh, I like that it's the celebration of the birth of our Savior. I like that it's a time of year when people come to church who don't usually come. Um, But if I'm honest, I like it for more superficial reasons, too. I like the decorations. I like the lights. I like giving presents. I like getting presents. Um, I like those uh, Christmas specials with the stop-motion animated puppets. Uh, I like all of that stuff. But I realize some of us here might not like Christmas as much as I do. And that's not because we don't like Jesus, but because it seems like Christmas has um, become more about consumerism and some sort of bizarre pagan mythology involving elves and reindeer uh, than, it, than it is about Jesus. And some of us may also be aware that we really don't even know for sure when Jesus was b- born, calendar-wise. Um, according to our most educated guesses, it was actually probably sometime in the spring, not December. Uh, so if we're aware of that, that can add to our cynical feelings a little bit when it comes to Christmas. But I would say that regardless of when Jesus was actually born, regardless of uh, whether Christmas has been influenced by pagan celebrations or whether or not it's been tainted by consumerism, uh, this time of year is a great opportunity to remember a special part of Jesus' story. Um, And what I love about Christmas is that it helps us not just to remember the facts about Jesus' birth story, but I think it helps us to feel like some of the awe and wonder that we ought to feel when we think about that. I mean, and if electric lights on strings help that to happen for you, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I feel like it does it for me. So, so this month at St. Paul's, we are going to be looking at the Christmas story. We're going to be looking at what the Bible actually has to say about the story and what we can learn from it. And hopefully as we do that, we'll experience some of that awe and wonder that we we want to feel uh, when we think about Jesus' birth. And the way we're going to do that is by looking at different parts of the nativity scene. Uh, The nativity scene is like a a little symbol, a little icon of the whole Christmas story. Um, And what we're going to do this month is we're going to look at the characters in the nativity and we're going to ask, what does the Bible have to say about these characters and what can we we learn from them? So... um, I was hoping to get a a, a really fancy nativity scene up here, and every week we can add some characters to it. And um, courtesy of Claire Anderson, we have this, which is very cute, right? And this week we're going to be, you'll see it's it's empty right now, right? This week we're going to start with Joseph and Mary. They're the first ones. I don't know, we might have a different nativity next week. We'll see, but this will do for now. So here they are, Joseph and Mary. And um, <clears throat> we're, uh, we're going to, over the month, build up the nativity until we add the final piece. And I'm sure you can all imagine who the final piece will be. So, no, spoiler, spoiler warning. But um, Now, of the four gospel accounts, 
the accounts of Jesus' life, there's actually only two of them that say anything about the Christmas story, uh, Matthew and Luke. And they're actually very different accounts. They don't contradict at all, but they talk about different things. And one of the things that I love about the way that they complement each other is that in one of them we get Mary's side of the story, and in the other one we get Joseph's. Um, So we're going to look at both of them. And before we do, uh, let's say a quick prayer before we get into the, into the word. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this story. Uh, we thank you uh, for uh, the awe and wonder that it can uh, engender in our hearts, Lord. And we just pray that as we read this story, God, that you would help us to see it with fresh eyes. It may be something we've heard uh, many times before, but I pray that you would uh, make it come alive for us now, Lord. And um, I pray that you'd help us to learn exactly uh, what it is that you want us to take from it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Luke 1, starting in verse 26. And Steve actually uh, prepared us all for this when he read it as our invocation, which is great. Um, We're going to read it again, but... um, It'll be fresh in your minds already, which is a good thing. Uh, So starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing's impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. So let's talk about Mary. Mary was a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. So in those days, the common practice was that parents would arrange a marriage, and then if both the potential bride and groom consented in front of two witnesses, then they were considered betrothed or engaged. And typically, this betrothal period lasted about a year, and during that time, the groom would prepare a home for he and his bride. Uh, And even though the betrothal was a very serious level of commitment, it was still expected that during that time the couple would refrain from any sexual activity until the marriage celebration. Now, the text doesn't actually tell us how old Mary and Joseph were, but history suggests that the typical time that a girl would be betrothed would be between 12 and 14, and 16 at the oldest. Uh, For men, it would be around 18 to 20. So unless Mary and Joseph are very unusual, uh, chances are they are really young. They're disturbingly young by our standards, right? Um, And I've noticed most of the art of the nativity gets this wrong. I mean, 
Look at this picture here. <laughs> Joseph looks more like Santa than a high school senior. He's totally bald, gray beard. Not only would Joseph probably not have gray in his beard, he probably wouldn't even be able to grow a beard. I couldn't grow a beard when I was 18. So, <laughs> by our standards, Mary and Joseph look like kids. Um, they were not the mature, regal-looking people that you often see in art. And not only were they kids, they were poor, too. And we know this because in Luke chapter 2, after Jesus is born, we're told that when Mary and Joseph go to the temple to present the newborn Jesus, they bring a sacrifice of either a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And that's significant because that's in keeping with a law from the book of Leviticus, the Old, Old Testament book of Leviticus, which says these are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. If she cannot afford a lamb, right? So Mary and Joseph were poor enough that they couldn't afford a lamb for a sacrifice, which when you think about it, I, I love this because I really believe God has a sense of humor uh, this is very poetic. They couldn't afford a lamb for the sacrifice, but when they presented Jesus, they were presenting the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, right? So it's so remarkable that God would choose a couple of poor kids who couldn't afford a lamb to be parents to the lamb, right? So the angel comes to Mary, this young teen, and he says to her, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And I can't help but laugh a little bit at Mary's response. Did you guys notice it the first time we read it? Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I like to imagine that the angel was like, okay, I know it's going to freak her out when I show up, because I know I'm kind of scary, I'm a supernatural being, uh, so what can I say to make sure that, you know, she doesn't lose her mind? It's like, well, I'll just emphasize that God really likes her a lot, you know? I'll say, I'll say she's highly favored. Yeah, that will be good. And I'll say God is with you, right? <laughs> but it still doesn't work. <laughs> it says she was greatly troubled. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe those words in the Greek actually have more of a connotation of excited or stunned. But no, <laughs> I looked it up. In the Greek, it means troubled. Like, she was... She was scared. She was disturbed. And I want us to recognize that because I think Mary has become this almost non-human person in uh, Christian art and tradition. She always looks strangely serene in pictures, like almost to a spooky degree. Um, But she was very human, right? When a supernatural being stood before her, she freaked out, which is, even though though the, the supernatural being said nice things, she still freaked out. And that's probably how any of the rest of us mortals would respond in that situation. So the angel reassures Mary again, do not be afraid, you have found favor with God. And he tells her that she's going to bear a child who will become a king and whose kingdom will never end. And then Mary, being very reasonable, logical, says, well, how will this be since I am a virgin? I remember when I was in high school, I had a teacher who, around Christmas time, said something about the virgin birth. And I remember one of my classmates, this is public school, uh, responding with a lot of derision in her voice. And she was like, 
Why would anyone believe that? We know now virgins can't have babies. And I never said anything to her about it, but I remember thinking, well, Mary knew that too. (laughs) Mary's question is a reminder that the people in the first century didn't just believe anything. They weren't just uh, gullible fools. Yeah, it was a pre-scientific age, but people still knew a lot about the way the world works. And uh, they knew virgins don't have babies. And that's why, as we're going to see in a little bit, Joseph was ready to divorce Mary, uh, because he knew, too, virgins don't have babies. And yet the Bible tells us Mary still had a baby. But that's not because virgins have babies. That's because, like the angel says, Nothing is impossible with God. That's the point. So this young, poor, freaked out teenager is told that she's going to have a baby, even though she's a virgin, and that that baby is going to rule an everlasting kingdom. And she responds, I imagine probably while trembling, saying, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. So what I want us to see here, okay, Mary is fully human. She gets scared. She's a kid, right? But she was also a person of faith. I mean, she's just been told she's going to be pregnant even though she's not married. And especially during that time, I mean, she must have realized once she knew that that was going to happen, that, well, for one, people probably aren't going to buy her story about a virgin conception, right? She, she had to realize that this is going to put her relationship with Joseph in jeopardy, she, she had to realize this is going to bring shame on her and her family. I mean, I wouldn't be able to blame her if she had said, couldn't you find someone who's married already? You know, because then it won't look as bad. Or couldn't you find someone a little older, a little more experienced? Or, even better, if you can create this fetus inside of me, why don't you just create the baby fully formed right now so I don't have to go through the nine months gestation and delivery and all that? Why don't you just do that, God? Why don't you start the miracle there? But Mary doesn't say anything like that. Uh, She's not like Moses, who was also asked to do something great for God, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Do you remember what Moses said? Please send someone else. But Mary basically says, all right, Lord, so be it. So Mary, fully human, but she's an incredible example of someone who's willing to be used by God in a radical way. To say, okay, God, okay, God, to something that's going to so profoundly alter her life and her body. You know, to say, okay, God, to something that's going to bring shame on her and possibly ruin her relationships with her family and her friends and her fiancé, that's... Really amazing faith, especially for a poor teenager. Okay, so that's Mary's side of the story. Let's look at Joseph's. Uh, If you have your Bibles, flip to Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Matthew 1, 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, 
an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph, poor Joseph, before getting any messages from God, he finds out his fiancée is pregnant. And I think we can imagine what that was like for him. I think there are few things more devastating than finding out that someone who's committed to being intimate with you and you alone has violated that promise. But we're told that Joseph responds to this devastating news in a righteous way. Right? It says, Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. I want us to notice what scripture is telling us here about righteousness and what righteousness looks like. See, on the one hand, Joseph's righteousness leads him to recognize that if Mary really has been unfaithful to him, that's grounds for divorce, right? It's it's a righteous thing to recognize that sex is a big deal, right? It's an act that's meant to create a lifelong covenant between two people. And so when someone violates that covenant, a righteous response to that is grief. A righteous response is a recognition that the covenant's been broken. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying uh, that infidelity must lead to divorce. There's uh, beautiful examples of reconciliation and renewal in marriages. Um, But the fact is that when infidelity occurs, the marriage covenant has been broken. And it is righteous to recognize the seriousness of that, which Joseph does. But at the same time, there's another aspect to Joseph's righteous response, right? Which is that even though he's heartbroken, even though he's decided to divorce her, he wants to do it quietly. So in other words, he wants to do it in a way that brings Mary as little shame as possible. Uh, He doesn't want to destroy Mary's life. He doesn't want her to never have a second chance. So even though she's broken his heart, he's not trying to take vengeance on her. That's what I want us to recognize. Uh, So righteousness isn't just about judgment, right? Joseph is a righteous man, and because he's a righteous man, he doesn't want to destroy Mary's life. Because he's a righteous man, He wants her to have an opportunity for a second chance. So it's important for us to recognize that because sometimes we hear that word righteous and we think it just means kind of this perfection where you have no tolerance for any sin at all and all you want to do is ensure that everyone plays by the rules and everything. Yes, righteousness is doing what is right, but there's a merciful aspect to righteousness as well. And Joseph, because he's a righteous man, he's he's embodying both of those things. But fortunately... Joseph never does divorce Mary because God gives him a special revelation that the child was conceived through the Holy Spirit. So God speaks to him through an angel in a dream. Now, 
we're not told whether Mary tried to explain the situation to him before the angel did. We can, we can expect that if she did, it probably didn't go over very well. Um, but I'm so glad that God spoke directly to Joseph. Because, I don't know, if I had a fiancé and she came to me and she said, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit, I'd appreciate some confirmation from God <laughs> that that was actually true. That's really hard news to believe. You know, even if you trust your fiancé wholeheartedly. And God knows how hard it is to believe something like that. And so he gives Joseph the confirmation that he needs. And after he does, Joseph, just like Mary, submits to God. It says that uh, Joseph did everything that the angel commanded, and that meant remaining engaged to Mary. Even though he's got to know that by marrying this woman, he is bringing shame upon himself and his family. Because people are going to assume, when that baby arrives really soon, (laughs) the people are going to assume that either that they conceived a child out of wedlock, or that Mary cheated on him and he married her anyway. Uh, Either way, by going through with the marriage, Joseph is opening himself up to social disgrace. But Joseph follows that command anyway. He takes Mary as his wife, and because of that, he becomes adoptive father to Jesus, king of kings. Now, it's important for us to to recognize the the point of the gospel accounts is not to tell us to be like Mary and Joseph. Uh, The point of the gospel accounts is to get us to recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the big idea here. And that ultimately is why we get this incredible story about a virgin birth. Because the virgin birth is a sign that Jesus is not like anybody else in history. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another king. He's the prophet of prophets. He's the king of kings. He's the light of the world. He's the word made flesh. He's the lamb of God. Right? And that's why God has him enter the world differently than anybody else in this miraculous, crazy way. But that said, I do think that Mary and Joseph are examples for us of what it looks like to live a life of faith. When Jesus came into their world, he disrupted everything. Right? He turned their reputations up to, upside down. He changed their plans. And even though that was a special, unique moment in history, it's still true today that when Jesus comes into our world, he disrupts things. Uh, sometimes he asks us to do things that do bring social stigma on us. And I don't think uh, he wants us to give anyone the impression that we're being unfaithful to our spouse. <laughs> But um, sometimes he does call us to do things that hurt our reputation in the eyes of the world. Uh, In the world of academics, if you say that you believe in something like the virgin birth or the resurrection of Jesus, that might invite ridicule. People aren't very accepting of that. And in a society where money and success are seen as priorities, choosing to invest in God's kingdom is often seen as foolish. And in a world where truth is seen as relative, uh, if you try to say that you know, Jesus is the way to God, that can be seen as backward and narrow. All these things can hurt your reputation. But I think Mary and Joseph remind us that when we're willing to prioritize God's will over our reputation, that's when he works the most powerfully through us. And it might not look as dramatic as it did for Mary and Joseph, but when we're willing 
great things are possible. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the example of Mary and Joseph. And we thank you for their willingness to participate in, in your story. And um, we thank you for the miraculous way that you, you worked through them. Um, we thank you for this unbelievable story. And we pray, Lord, that during this time of year, um, if it seems um, like a distant reality, Lord, that it would become very real and present to us. Um, that the reality that uh, you entered the world uh, in, the, in the form of a, of a human being, um, being born as a, as a small child, God, as a, as a baby, I pray, Lord, that we would be captured by the awe and wonder of that. And I, I pray that like Mary and Joseph, we would be willing uh, to follow your leading, even if at times uh, it, it, it damages our reputation or leads to some sort of social stigma, God. I pray that we would put your will first. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.